This is The Guardian. Today, why is a British woman being sent to prison for having an abortion? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Abortion is a very common procedure in Britain. You may have had one yourself. You'll almost certainly know people who have. This procedure is so little spoken about, and yet so every day, that you may forget that abortion is actually illegal. Earlier this week, a woman in Stoke-on-Trent was given a 28-month prison sentence for taking abortion pills. Her case is complex, and it's distressing. She'd lied to the abortion providers in order to get the pills, saying she was less than 10 weeks pregnant, when, in reality, she'd been carrying the fetus for 32 weeks or more. If she'd given birth at that stage, the baby likely would have survived. But this happened in the height of lockdown in 2020, when the woman had been forced by circumstance to move in with her ex-partner. The baby was someone else's. And in court, the judge emphasised how much mental anguish she'd been through, how she was plagued by nightmares of seeing her dead baby's face. In giving her a prison sentence, he acknowledged the pain that would bring to her three existing children. She was a good mother, he said. But he had no choice. He had to follow the law. This woman was prosecuted for having an abortion. She wasn't prosecuted, actually, for the late term of it. She was prosecuted under an 1861 statute that just says abortion is a criminal act in of itself. The Labour MP Stella Creasy knows the laws on abortion well. She's been campaigning for years to have them changed. Though the Abortion Act 1967 has made it possible to have a legal termination under certain conditions... The law that underpins it dates back to 1861. That states that abortion is a crime worthy of jail. This is a difficult case. I I don't think anybody should be under any uh, illusion about it. The woman herself has expressed her own remorse. She's talked about how distressed she has been by the whole situation about the loss of her child. What I am arguing for is that this is not unique and to prosecute somebody in itself for having an abortion is problematic in a country where most people mistakenly think we have a legal right to have an abortion. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the case for changing Britain's abortion laws. Toby Thomas, you're a reporter for The Guardian and you were at the Crown Court in Stoke-on-Trent. Tell us the basics of the case. So the case in question is about a 44-year-old woman. She's a mother of three. 
what had happened is that she essentially was able to get hold of abortion medication through the British Pregnancy Advisory Service. And through that, she was able to essentially induce her own miscarriage. The legal limit for a medical abortion is that a person can take them at home up to 10 weeks. She led BPAS to believe that she was within that remit. But in reality, she believed at the time that she was around 28 weeks pregnant. And throughout the court case, it transpired that the fetus that was stillborn was between 32 to 34 weeks gestation. She pled guilty to a charge under the Offences Against the Person Act, which is legislation which dates back to Victorian times. We're choosing not to name the woman involved in the case. What came out in court about why she wanted or felt she needed to have an abortion? She had found out that she was pregnant in December of 2019. At the time, she was estranged from her now ex-husband. She was pregnant by someone else. Throughout the case, they cited a lot of her Google search history. And in February 2020, she had made searches, including how to not look pregnant and how to hide a pregnancy bump. So then lockdown happened March of that year. And she moved back with the now ex-husband. And so when she moved back in at the start of lockdown, she was trying to conceal that. Okay, so when she found out she was pregnant, this was in 2019. And at that point, to get an abortion, you'd have had to have gone to a clinic. When the pandemic started, the law was amended to allow people to get pills sent to them in the post. And the woman contacted the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, or BPAS, which is one of the main abortion providers in the country, for a phone consultation. What did she actually say to convince them to send her the pills? When you have one of the telemedical appointments, you go through a questionnaire with a BPAS nurse who asks you questions such as when your last period was, about any symptoms you've been experiencing, about when you may have possibly conceived. And although the court didn't exactly spell out the answers she gave, when she spoke to BPAS, she gave them answers that led them to believe that she was around seven weeks pregnant under the 10-week threshold to which she could be sent pills by post, essentially, which were the two abortion medications. But one point that the prosecution made was that at the time she had made Google searches such as risk of abortion pill at 28 weeks, and if I took misoprostol at 28 weeks, will it kill my baby? What did her defence team say? Why did she lie about how far along with the pregnancy she was? The defence team really made the case to convey how emotionally distressed she felt at that time, having to conceal a pregnancy. I think also the Google searches that were read out, which were saying stuff like, can I hit myself in the stomach? Will that cause a miscarriage? What can I take to make me a miscarriage? How can I not look pregnant? I think that evidence just really shows how desperate she was at the time. Yeah, it definitely does. How did the authorities find out that she'd gone through with the abortion? After she took the abortion medication in May, which essentially induced her own labour, her partner called emergency services. And so she essentially delivered at home, but was admitted to hospital. And it was in a hospital bed that after being spoken to by medical healthcare professionals, that police were called to her bedside and she was questioned. Initially, she was charged with child destruction. 
and she pleaded not guilty to that. She later pleaded guilty to an alternative charge, which is Section 58 of the Offences Against the Person Act, 1861. And that charge was administering drugs or using instruments to procure abortion. What case did the prosecution make against her? So the main case that the prosecution made was that she had knowingly misled, knowingly lied to BPAS. They also referred to some messages between herself and the father, so it was made clear that he was aware that she was pregnant. We also heard that she had led him to believe that she had successfully had an abortion earlier. Did the father give evidence in court? No, the father didn't give evidence in court, but both the father and also her now ex-husband did write character references to the court. Her ex-husband essentially said that she was a fantastic person, a loving mother to her sons, that she has a strong bond with them. One quite strong sentence that the defence lawyer Barry White did say was that what she needs now is family support and assistance. On Monday, the judge, Justice Pepperell, delivered his verdict, which he laid out in sentencing remarks that run to six pages. And there was one element that really caught my eye. He mentioned that several pregnancy and abortion groups had written to him, pleading with him not to give the woman a prison sentence. Tell me about that. Yeah, so the letter was addressed to the judge in April of this year, It essentially was a mitigation plea, urging them not to give the woman a custodial sentence. It was signed by quite notable bodies, including the president of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, the head of the Royal College of Midwives, the president of the Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Healthcare. Addressing the judge, they said, We plead to your honour to consider leniency in this case. We are fearful that if the case before you receives a custodial sentence, it may signal to other women who access telemedical abortion services or who experience later gestational deliveries that they risk imprisonment if they seek medical care. They also asked if they would be given the opportunity to attend the court in person and present the plea to the judge in person. So they essentially were advocating on the woman's behalf. So they were arguing that giving this woman a prison sentence could make other people scared to seek an abortion, even within the 24-week limit. And so they could be left with no choice but to go ahead with a pregnancy that they didn't want or couldn't cope with. And the judge disagreed with that point, didn't he? Yeah, the judge said that the letter was inappropriate because it could be seen as special pleading by those who may favour wider access to abortions. He added that in his eyes, the letter would be just as inappropriate as if it were sent from a group of anti-abortion campaigners who were pleading on him to give her a harsher or longer prison sentence. So the argument he was really making was to say, look, I'm not here to set the law. What I'm here to do is enforce the law as it currently stands. If you want the law to change, you need to ask Parliament for that. Yes. The judge sentenced her to 28 months. He said she'll spend half of that in prison and the other half out on licence. To what extent did he take into account her life circumstances? In his summing up, he said, addressing her, you are racked by guilt and have suffered depression. 
he said that he accepted that she had a deep emotional attachment to the unborn child and that she's plagued by nightmares and flashbacks to seeing the dead child's face. The judge also said that he had taken into account the fact that she is a good mother to three children who would suffer from her imprisonment and that one of the children who has special needs as a consequence is particularly reliant on her support and her love. The judge did say that in his eyes, one of the biggest tragedies in the case is that the woman did not plead guilty at the earliest opportunity in magistrate's court. He said that if she had done so, then the sentence he said he was not obliged to pass in law could have been suspended, meaning that she wouldn't be given a custodial sentence. One thing that was made clear in court was that because this is such a rare offence to be prosecuted, there isn't much of a precedent to go by when it comes to sentencing guidelines. Since the verdict on Monday, you've been speaking to abortion care providers and pro-choice campaigners. What have they told you? How do they see this case? BPAS have noticed a trend over the past few years of an increasing amount of police investigations regarding later gestational deliveries or stillbirths. One example she gave was of a woman who had initially found out she was pregnant and had booked a consultation with BPAS for an early medical abortion. She had then changed her mind, so didn't have an abortion. But then when she later gave birth at full term, the baby was stillborn. After she had told her medical team that she had earlier inquired about an abortion, they had contacted the police and she was investigated by the police based off that. Stella Creasy, you're the Labour MP for Walthamstow and you've been campaigning for years for the law on abortion in Britain to be changed. People might assume that abortion up to 24 weeks is legal, but that's not the case. Can you just explain what the law is? Yeah, I mean, people often look at me like I'm mad when I say we don't have a legal right to abortion in England, Wales and Scotland. But what the law currently says, and it's based on a statute from 1861, which puts having an abortion in the same level as casting stones on a railway bridge, using gunpowder to blow up a building and murder. And that legislation says that anybody who has an abortion or indeed helps somebody else have an abortion could be liable for up to life imprisonment for committing one of those crimes. What people are most familiar with is the 1967 Act brought in by David Steele, which exempted women from prosecution under that original 1861 Act under certain conditions. So basically, if two doctors said, well, frankly, this woman will have a nervous breakdown if she doesn't have an abortion. And abortion access in England, Wales and Scotland has pretty much rested on those principles ever since. So when people try to say to me, don't be daft, of course you can have a legal abortion in England and Wales, I say, well, no, you can be exempted from prosecution, but the threat of prosecution is not a theoretical thing. It's happening. The law in Northern Ireland is different, isn't it? Abortion was illegal there up until 2020. Can you just explain the difference? Yeah, so we fought very hard to support the women in Northern Ireland who had no access to abortion at all. We changed the law to remove this 1861 statute from the Northern Irish law book and to bring in a human rights-based framework. So the prosecution we saw earlier this week 
simply could not have happened in Northern Ireland. Now, many listeners may have looked at the case and be horrified by the case, and I understand why it was a very, very tragic case involving a late abortion, which is thankfully a very rare occurrence. But women in England and Wales could be prosecuted at any time during their pregnancy for having an abortion. And the contrast in Northern Ireland is very startling. This is an extremely common procedure. You know, almost a quarter of a million women have abortions every year in England and Wales. Why hasn't the law been changed to bring it in line with Northern Ireland? Often in politics, abortion is seen as one of those third rail issues. Um, You know, you don't go near it. I've often had people say to me, look, don't try and push for change because those people who don't agree that women should have a right to choose at all will use that opportunity to reduce access or to try and stop access. But I also would say, if you look at that case, the woman admitted that she had misled the abortion providers. It was a very late-term abortion. I think most people would recognise that that was a very tragic case. And right now she's in prison. I don't understand in whose public interest it was to pursue that case when clearly what she needed was support. Because if other women are currently in the same position as this woman and facing prosecution, I just don't think that's where the British public are at. And the polls tell us consistently people support a woman's right to choose. Well, that right to choose shouldn't be qualified by the threat of prosecution because then it's not really a right. What do you think an effective and contemporary abortion law would look like? What would be fit for our times? I'm very proud of the work that we did in Northern Ireland to bring in a human rights-based framework, which recognised that women had a a human right to be able to make that choice. And I hope in time that proves a model for what we could do in the rest of England and Wales. Obviously, Scotland, again, has its own, own legal terms as well on some of this. But that first of all, removes this 1861 statute, the Offences Against the Person Act, sections 58 and 59. I want to be very clear, it doesn't change the restrictions about time limits. In in Northern Ireland, they've set their own time limits. And I think think people here in England and Wales understand why we have the time limits that we do have. Because as I say, when most abortions happen at under 10 weeks, the reason why we permit it up to 28 weeks is frankly, for the cases that just completely break your heart. People who have a fatal fetal abnormality that might not be diagnosed until that late into your pregnancy. The parents who are told that their child probably won't live beyond birth. You know, nobody in that position should be castigated or coerced into having a baby to term that they know is going to die. I don't think anybody could possibly justify that. What we need to do is look at what works in a modern era. In a modern era, the vast majority of women, when they can have access, have an abortion at an early stage, they use medicine, and they would like to be able to exercise that choice. Do we know how many other women are being investigated for breaking abortion laws? We know that there's a number of cases in train at the moment, and we know over the last 10 years, 67 have faced prosecution under this 1861 statute. So it's not a theoretical issue. Um, I often get Um, Well, it's mainly men of a certain age telling me that I'm completely wrong and I've misunderstood the law yet again on social media. I don't think they understand that the CPS hasn't put this arcane statute to the back of the pile. It, It is using it. Coming up, the Pills by Post scheme has improved women's access to abortion. But could it also have put them at greater risk of being prosecuted? Finding your perfect home was hard. 
But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Stella, last year you were among the MPs who voted to make telemedicine or abortion pills by post, as people refer to them, available permanently. Why? We know that there are issues for women, particularly in rural communities and in coercive relationships, to be able to access abortion in the current environment. It's not actually that easy to go and see a doctor multiple times as the law requires that you do. I mean, and certainly during the pandemic, the alternative would have been thousands of women being forced to carry pregnancies they did not wish to have had we not brought in telemedicine. That experience showed us that it was a perfectly reasonable service to be able to provide and that it was fulfilling a service for those women who were finding it hard to access doctors within the timeframes. I cannot stress enough that the vast majority of abortions that take place in this country take place before 10 weeks. And so pills rather than an operation is a suitable form of treatment. And if we want to be able to help women make that difficult choice and make it in a way that is medically as easy to bear as possible, then telemedicine is part of that modern solution. But what's happened in the case this week is what some anti-choice campaigners warned about that doctors can't properly assess people over the phone. If they'd seen this woman, she wouldn't have been given the pills. And actually, BPAS's Associate Director, Catherine O'Brien, has told The Guardian this week that though telemedicine has improved women's access to abortion, it's also possibly part of the reason that more women are being investigated, that police are suspicious, as she puts it, that women might have used these pills outside the terms of the law. What do you say to that? Are you at all worried about the risks that are run by having telemedicine available? I'm sorry, I just don't accept that language. I don't think there is a risk in having telemedicine available in itself. 
continuing on that service is not going to make more people do what happened in this case. It is about a modern healthcare service that trusts women and provides a range of service options for women to be able to exercise that choice. The alternative is to have unsafe access to abortion. And I think we all recognise that a woman in the position as desperate as she was, was making very bad choices. But that isn't a reason to remove telemedicine from that modern framework of how you access a healthcare service. This is a really difficult case because the woman was eight months into her pregnancy and the judge in his sentencing also mentioned Sarah Catt who was prosecuted for taking abortion pills a week before her due date and I've seen as you've been posting on this you've had hundreds of comments haven't you including from people who say they're pro-choice but they feel very conflicted about these cases you know you in wanting the law on abortion to change What will be the safeguard against people aborting at any stage in their pregnancy? We have term limits. Nobody's talking about changing the term limits. What we're talking about doing is giving women in this country the right they think they have, but they don't, which is the right to make a choice and to protect that legally. The safeguards come in absolutely from how you access this medicine and the term limits that we set and the reason that we set those. And that is always an incredibly sensitive issue. And abortion care providers have raised concerns about the increasing presence of anti-choice campaigners around clinics. So earlier this year, the law changed to bring in buffer zones. So campaigners have to stand at least 150 metres away and they could be sent to prison if they try to get in the way of women who are trying to get into the clinics. Why do you think the situation has become heated to that extent that the laws had to be changed? I want to be very clear. I will always defend the right of people to campaign against abortion if they so wish. What I won't defend is the idea that they have that right to do that anywhere they fancy, including in the faces of women who are choosing to go and have an abortion. But we've absolutely seen an increase in funding going into anti-abortion activism here in England and Wales and an encouragement to use what people might consider to be those kind of American Trumpian tactics of arguing the extreme is the norm, lurid pictures, aggressive language. I don't think people in the UK who've consistently supported a woman's right to choose will find that appealing, but they find it quite frightening. And I think we should all find it quite frightening that this is now increasingly happening in the UK Parliament as well. This case has reignited the debate about abortion much more broadly. Given how controversial and emotive that subject can be, are you worried about the level of public discourse? Absolutely. And I know and I can see the debate becoming bad-tempered. And frankly, MPs can't keep putting this in the too difficult, too sensitive box. We will get multiple emails and angry messages, whatever we do. What we need to do is look to our conscience and look to the women who are right now worried and fearful about their right to choose and say, we hear you, we see you, we stand with you, and we will fight for your right to equality. So the safest option, the most pro-life option is to have a safe, legal and local abortion service for all women. Stella Creasy, thank you very much. Thank you, Hannah, for having me today. 
That was Stella Creasy, MP for Walthamstow. And before her, Toby Thomas, a reporter for The Guardian. Thank you to both of them. I know you might have found what we've discussed in today's episode distressing. And if you want to talk to someone, Samaritans are available at any time of the day or night. It's free to call them. Their number is 116-123. And their email address is joe, that's J-O, at samaritans.org. For more information about abortion and your options, you can get in touch with MSI Reproductive Services or BPAS. This episode was produced by Cletia Sala and Courtney Youssef. Sound design was by Adam Bransbury and the executive producer was Huma Khalili. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.